Amen. Friends, good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you today and to have this opportunity to open up God's word and to hear him speak to us through his word. And we know that we come to, in scripture, a living word. Even when we look at Psalm 44, which was written 3,000 years ago, it's a 3,000-year-old living word that God is going to speak to us through today. So I'm going to pray for us briefly, and then we'll look uh, at the psalm together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we believe, we confess as one people that your word is living and active. It doesn't matter how many years have passed since this psalm was written. The Spirit works by your word and exposes our hearts, convicts us, sanctifies us, opens our eyes to the ways that we have fallen from grace and turned from your ways. And we pray that the Spirit would work today through your word to sanctify your people and to save those who are dwelling in darkness today. Let the light of the Lord Jesus Christ shine in our midst today, brighter than the lights that are on in this room right now. Open up our hearts. Cause us to confess that Christ is King, because he is. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, I want you to go ahead and open with me in your Bible to Psalm 44. Uh, If you're using the Bible that we've provided, you're going to find Psalm 44 on pages 470 and 471. Uh, We are on a brief two-week hiatus from the book of Genesis. I try to sprinkle in psalms throughout the year. This is the first sprinkle of 2022, Psalm 44. And then next week, Nathan Knight, the pastor of Restoration Church in Northwest D.C., is going to be preaching to us from 2 Timothy. I'm looking forward to that as well. Uh, As you turn to Psalm 44, I want to encourage you to go ahead and open there so that you can follow along as I read, and I want you to keep whatever you're reading the Bible on this morning, whether it's a physical Bible or your phone or an iPad or something, keep it open in front of you because we're going to look often at our passage this morning. Uh, John Calvin once said about the book of Psalms that it is an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. What he meant was that in the Psalms, we find the whole range of human emotion expressed as God's people wrestled with the realities of life in a fallen world. And so we encounter Psalms of joyful celebrations in praise of God for who he is in himself and because of the multitudinous blessings he showers on his people. We also come across Psalms expressing anger because of the prevalence of evil and injustice in the world. We experience psalms expressing peace and contentment that flow, from coming, uh, that flow out of uh, having a relationship with God. We meet with sadness and spiritual depression as people lament the various circumstances they're facing in life and the, the distance that they feel from God. And we encounter lament, deep lament, over suffering experienced in this world. And Psalm 44 is one of those psalms. It's a psalm of lament. The psalmist, written here, known as the sons of Korah, the sons of Korah were men who led the nation of Israel in worship. One of the sons of Korah penned this psalm, and he laments the suffering that he and the people of Israel he's leading are experiencing. Suffering that we'll see doesn't make sense from his perspective. Perhaps that describes you this morning. 
Perhaps you're suffering some trial. You can't understand why God would allow this to happen. And maybe it's even made you question God's goodness or his existence at all. If that's you, Psalm 44 is for you. Psalm 44 is written by someone who was sharing your circumstances. Maybe not specifically and exactly, but he was suffering in a way that just made absolutely no sense to him. But even if that's not you right now, Psalm 44 is still for you. Because the reality is, if you're not suffering now, you will at some point in this life. We all will suffer at some point. The question is, how will you respond in your suffering? Will it drive a wedge between you and the Lord? Will it cause you to doubt his goodness? Or will it cause you to depend on him more, knowing that even though you may not have answers, you know that you can't be separated from God's love for you? Well, I want us to go ahead and look at Psalm 44 together. You should follow along in your Bible as I read the passage for us. This is God's word. To the choir master, a masculine of the sons of Korah. O God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face. For you delighted in them. You are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Selah. But you, you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way, yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? 
for he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Psalm 44's message to us today is one that we all need to hear since we will all eventually endure suffering at some point in our life. Psalm 44's message to us today is this. God sovereignly ordains that we suffer in ways that don't always make sense. But that suffering will never separate us from God's love for us. God sovereignly ordains that we suffer in ways that don't always make sense. But that suffering will never separate us from God's love for us in Christ. If you're taking notes, we're going to consider this passage under two points. Point one, God sovereignly ordains that we suffer in ways that don't always make sense. And point two, that suffering, though, will never separate us from God's love for us. So first, God sovereignly ordains that we suffer in ways that don't always make sense. And that point is a bit of a surprise given how the psalm starts, right? The first half of the psalm, you may have noticed, is dominated by the ways that God had sovereignly given the nation of Israel victory over her enemies. Specifically, in the first four verses, the psalmist looks back on how God had sovereignly given the people of Israel the land of Canaan in ages past. Look at verse two. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but them, that is Israel, but them you planted. Now look at verse three. For not by their own sword did they win the land. They were saved by your right hand and your arm and the light of your face because you delighted in them. But he also wasn't just looking back on the victories God had sovereignly won in the distant past. He himself had experienced God giving his people victory. Look at verse 5. Through you, we push down our foes. Through your name, we tread down those who rise against us. Now look at verse 7. But you have saved us from our foes and have Put to shame those who hate us. He had personally experienced God sovereignly given the people of Israel victory in his own day. It's no surprise then that you see him boast in God and give thanks to him in verse 8. No, the surprise comes in the rest of the psalm where we find that Psalm 44 isn't primarily about God sovereignly giving his people victory. It's about his people wrestling with the fact that God also sovereignly ordained their suffering. I want you to notice the the descriptions of their suffering. Look at verse 9. They've been rejected and disgraced. Verse 10. They were routed in battle, fled from their enemies, and had their belongings plundered. 
Verse 11, they were routed so badly that as they went into battle, they were like sheep being led to the slaughter. And those who weren't killed in battle were taken prisoner, scattered among the nations. And you have verses 13 and 14. They're being taunted and mocked by the nations that have defeated them. Verses 15 and 16. They're disgraced and ashamed as they're mercilessly taunted by their enemies. They are suffering terribly. But there's something else I want you to notice. Look again with me at verses 9 to 14. Notice especially how verses 9 to 14 all start the exact same way. You have rejected and disgraced us. You have made us turn back from the foe. You have made us like sheep for the slaughter. You have sold your people for a trifle. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors. You have made us a byword among the nations. All of our suffering has been sovereignly ordained by you. You see, the psalmist knows that nothing happens apart from God's will. And so he rightly concludes that God sovereignly ordained for all of this to happen. And to make matters worse, their suffering doesn't make any sense. Look at verses 17 and 18. All this has come upon us Though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant, our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way, yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. We are being killed all day long like sheep to be slaughtered. Just put it in, put it in modern terms. We've done nothing to deserve this, God. We've been faithful. We haven't worshipped false gods. We haven't broken your commandments. We, we, we've tried our best to be faithful, and yet you've caused us to suffer. There's no reason that we should be suffering. Our suffering makes no sense whatsoever. Now, we might read these verses and conclude mistakenly that this guy is at best self-deceived, and at worst, self-righteous, right? Right, Christians, we all know, Book of Romans, like all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. This guy is self-righteous and self-deceived. But I don't think that's what's going on here. I think that would be a mistaken way to approach this passage and interpret it, right? Yes, God did promise that if his people turn from them, according to the agreement of the old covenant, that if his people turn from them, he would hand them over to their enemies. And he ultimately did do that to the nation as a whole when he sent them into exile. But we should not overlook the fact that in the cycles of rebellion, judgment, repentance, and restoration that occur throughout the Old Testament, there were numerous periods in which God's people broadly speaking, walked in God's ways and still suffered defeat. Not only that, even though the Bible is crystal clear that all have sinned, it also clearly portrays men and women 
walking in faithfulness to God. Living lives marked by obedience. Perfectly? Of course not. But sufficiently enough to be described as faithful, righteous, those who walk with God. Kids, teens, any of y'all, can any of you tell me people that we meet, name anybody that you find in the Old Testament that's described as faithful, walks with God, righteous. Enoch walked with God, and he, wasn't, he got to go to heaven. He skipped out on most of the suffering, right? Adoniah. King David, absolutely right. King David, Jack. Noah walked with God. Melky. Say louder. That's okay. Melchizedek would be one. Abram. Moses, faithful, right? Think about that. Noah, Abraham, David, Job. And you know what else all of those righteous, faithful people had in common? They all suffered. They all suffered. Abraham and Sarah experienced infertility for decades. David was hunted by Saul for years. Job lost all of his children in one day. Faithfulness to God isn't a vaccine against suffering. Even those who are faithful to God will at times suffer. And that's what's going on here. And it doesn't make sense to the psalmist. Notice verse 24. Why? Why? Why is this happening? We've done what you've called us to do. We've been faithful to the covenant. We've walked in your ways. We haven't gone after false gods, and yet we're suffering. This doesn't make sense to us. I'm guessing that some of you here today can relate to this. You've repented and put your trust in Jesus. You've turned from being your own God and now confess that God is your king. You, you've fought to put sin to death, right? You've not done it perfectly, but you've done it earnestly. Broadly speaking, you're living a faithful life and yet you're still suffering. Perhaps you've lost a child or received a terrible diagnosis or are experiencing chronic debilitating pain or suffering from depression or you're in a difficult marriage that shows no signs of getting better and in fact only seems to be getting worse or you've gone out of your way to be a faithful employee and your boss or a coworker of yours seems intent on making your life as difficult as possible. The list of ways that we can suffer is endless. And the pain of that suffering is made worse when the suffering doesn't make any sense. When we're genuinely trying to live a life that pleases God and yet still suffering. What do we do when that happens? I think the first thing this psalm teaches us to do is remember that God is sovereign over 
our suffering. Just notice how the psalmist emphasizes over and over that God was sovereign over both their victories and their defeats, over their wins and their losses, over their flourishing and their suffering. It's so important to remember that God is sovereign over our suffering, that the inspired author of this psalm emphasizes God's sovereignty in nearly every single line of the psalm. And the reason that we need to remember that God is sovereign over our sufferings is so that we remember that God is bigger than our sufferings. God is bigger than our sufferings. Uh, J. Todd Billings is a professor of theology at Western Theological Seminary. He's also an author, uh, and he shared a story about how a letter he got from a girl, in, about a letter he got from a girl in his church after he was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And the story begins with him reading the final words of the letter, which, which said, Get well soon. Jesus loves you. God is bigger than cancer. My tears started to flow as I read these words. They were from a 15-year-old girl with Down syndrome in my congregation. Less than a week earlier, the doctor spoke the diagnosis to me about which he had no doubt, a cancer of the bone marrow, multiple myeloma, an incurable cancer, a fatal disease. I had been in a fog ever since. How was I to face each day when my future, which, it, which had seemed wide open, had suddenly narrowed? My world seemed to be caving in on itself with fog in each direction I turned so that no light could shine in. While I had received many cards in the previous days, this one was different. God is bigger than cancer. Yes. Yes. She did not say God will cure you of this cancer or God will suffer with you. She said God is bigger than cancer. The fog is thick and big, but God is bigger. My cancer story was already developing its own sense of drama. The sky was closing in, enveloping my whole world so that nothing else could creep in. But God's story, the drama of God's action in the world, was bigger. The girl in my church wasn't denying the fog or the loss, but testifying to the fact that though my cancer story was big, God was bigger. Period. Friends, I don't know all the ways that you are suffering, all the ways that you might be suffering today, or all the ways that you will suffer in your life, but I do know that no matter what, no matter how big those sufferings are, God is bigger. And because God is bigger than our suffering, he can be trusted in the midst of it. Even when we don't get answers to so many of the questions we ask when we're suffering. Notice how many questions the psalmist asks that ultimately go unanswered. Verse 23, 
Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Verse 24, why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Three different times he asks why, and three different times he receives no answer. And on this side of heaven, when it comes to our suffering, the reality is that we're almost always left with far more questions than answers. The Christian life is filled with unanswered questions. But those unanswered questions shouldn't cause us to doubt God's goodness. As obvious and as understandable as a temptation as that is going to be in the midst of suffering, those unanswered questions shouldn't cause us to doubt his sovereignty or his goodness. And we know that because because of what this psalm teaches us. And it teaches us that even though God sovereignly ordains that we suffer in ways that don't make sense, that suffering will never separate us from God's love for us. And that brings us to point two. Our sufferings will never separate us from God's love for us. And that may seem like an odd point to teach from a psalm that ends the way Psalm 44 ends. Psalm 44 ends with the psalmist on the verge of death and crying out for rescue, and then it ends. He never receives answers to his questions, and we are left to wonder whether God actually ever answered him. So how is it that this psalm teaches us that our suffering will never separate us from God's love for us? Well, the answer to that lies in understanding who the Psalms are all ultimately about. While the Psalms, in all their varied expressions of joy and anger, peace and turmoil, soaring praise and grief-filled lament, capture the experiences and emotions of the nation of Israel under the Old Covenant, they all, ultimately all, point forward to and are fulfilled in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Before we see ourselves and our sufferings that don't make sense in Psalm 44, we have to see first that Psalm 44 is ultimately about Jesus and his inexplicable sufferings. Jesus is the true, truly righteous man who inexplicably suffers for no fault of his own. He's the one who perfectly trusted in God in verses 1 to 8. The one who knew that all that he did was by the power of the Father at work within him. He he never trusted in the bow. He never trusted in the sword, but perfectly trusted in God. Yet, even though he always perfectly trusted in God, he's the one who was ultimately rejected and disgraced in verse 9. He's the one who is handed over to his enemies like the spoils of war in verse 10. He's the one who was made like a sheep for the slaughter in verse 11. The one who was sold for a trifle in verse 12. What what did Judas get for selling Jesus out? 30 pieces of silver. That's what the Son of God was worth. Sold out for a trifle. He's the one who was the taunt of his neighbors in verse 14, who mocked him as he hung on the cross, who hung disgraced and ashamed all while he was being taunted by his enemies in verse 15, and all of this came upon him, even though he never 
once forgot God. He was never false to God's covenant. His heart never turned back. His steps never departed from God's ways in verse 18. And yet, he was broken in the place of jackals, taken outside of the city to be crucified where people dumped their trash. And as he hung dying on the cross, the shadow of death covered him in verse 19. And all of this, even though he never forgot God, verse 21, never worshiped a false God. His heart was laid bare before God, and when God looked at Jesus' heart, he found perfect righteousness through and through. Perfect love, perfect trust, and yet in verse 22, for the Father's sake, he was regarded as a sheep to be slaughtered. He's the one in verse 23 who knew the ultimate pain of feeling like God was sleeping and feeling like God had abandoned and rejected him. He's the one in verse 24 who cries out, why? What does he ask on the cross? My God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? And he's the one whose question why was met with the ultimate silence. God did not answer him. And as verse 25 says, his soul was truly bowed down to the dust. He died on the cross. Died with his questions unanswered. But just because God didn't answer him doesn't mean he never answered him. The psalmist ends the psalms with pleas of, Rise up, O God, rescue and redeem your people. And and God did that for Jesus. God answered him by raising him from the dead. God showed him his steadfast love by bringing him back to life. God was not sleeping in Jesus' inexplicable suffering. God did hear by the power of his right arm and right hand. He made the light of his face shine on Jesus Christ because he delighted in him. And he displayed his sovereignty not only over life and over suffering, but over death itself by reaching into death and rescuing his beloved son from death. And why did he do this? He did it so that we also could be rescued from death, suffering, and judgment. You see, the reality is, as faithfully as we might seek to live our lives, none of us can claim to be ultimately and perfectly sinless. All of us, at different times and in different ways, have forgotten God, have been false to his covenant, have turned away from him in our heart, have departed from his paths. We have chosen death, suffering, and separation from God over eternal life, peace, and presence with God. But rather than leaving us without hope in a world of suffering and death, God sent his son, Jesus, into the world to live the perfectly righteous life that we should have lived and inexplicably die the death that we deserve so that we would be forgiven of our sins, freed from the power of sin, and receive God's steadfast love for us in Christ. And the promise 
that Psalm 44 holds out to us is that none of our sufferings through faith in Jesus Christ can ever or will ever separate us from God's love for us. And we know that because in Romans 8, as Paul is explaining how there's therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ and how the Spirit has set us free from the power of sin and we've become God's children and now fellow heirs with Christ of eternal life. He says about becoming fellow heirs with Christ that we must suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Just as Jesus suffered in ways that didn't make sense, since we have been united to him by faith, we will also suffer in ways that don't make sense to us. We will share in his inexplicable suffering. Ligon Duncan said this, when you're adopted into Jesus's family, you must be prepared to go Jesus's way. And Jesus's way is the way of the cross. And so when we're adopted into this family, we are adopted to experience the same persecutions and the same trials and losses and crosses that Jesus had to endure when he lived here for us. And we have to recognize, right, that when we talk about coming to share in Jesus' suffering, that's scary. What does that mean, Lord? What is it going to look like in my life? I, I know that you have said that I am going to share in Christ's sufferings, but that is frightening. But Paul knew this when he brought up the fact that if we are going to share in Christ's glory, we must share in his suffering. And so what does he say next? He assures us that the sufferings of this life aren't worthy of being compared with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. As great as the suffering is that we may experience, so much greater is the glory that is coming. And you have to really sit with that. Just don't let that be a platitude and a cliche. The suffering in the world is terrible. The degree of suffering in the world is unbelievable. You cannot wrap your mind around it. But so much greater is the glory that is going to be revealed to God's children. It is inexpressible in glorious, gloriousness. You cannot wrap your mind around it. And Paul says this, not only that, but God has sovereignly called us according to his purpose. And those whom he foreknew, he sovereignly predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those who he sovereignly predestined, he sovereignly called. And those whom he sovereignly called, he sovereignly justified. And those whom he sovereignly justified, he sovereignly glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, if God is for us, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for, interceding for us? What does this have to do with Psalm 44, John? Well, I'm glad you asked. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine 
or nakedness or danger or sword? Shall suffering separate us from the love of Christ? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. You you just have to sit with this for a second. At the climax, at the climax of what is perhaps the most glorious chapter in the entire New Testament, the Apostle Paul cites what verse? Psalm 44, verse 22. Yet for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He cites it because he sees in the inexplicable suffering of the righteous one fulfilled first in Jesus Christ, he also sees fulfilled in the experience of the inexplicable suffering that saints endure on their way to glory. And what does he want you to know about that suffering? He wants you to know that no matter how terrible it is, no matter how silent God may seem, no matter how many unanswered questions you might have, your suffering can never separate you from the love of Christ. And how do we know that's the point he's trying to make? Because that's what he goes on to say. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. No, in all these things, in all these sufferings, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, no amount of suffering, even as inexplicable as it might seem, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. No amount of suffering you face in this life, as bewildering as it might seem, as impossible as it might be to find answers to why your experience is suffering, will separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Friends, I will not presume to tell you that I know exactly why you're suffering. I don't know exactly why God has allowed whatever he has allowed into your life, but this I do know. God is good. And he displayed his goodness by coming into this world of death and suffering to take the ultimate suffering upon himself in our place so that we could ultimately be rescued and redeemed by God's sovereign power over suffering, over death, and over judgment. Not only that, I can say with confidence that you and I will never experience anything that Christ hasn't already experienced. We will never experience suffering that Christ hasn't also experienced. If we feel abandoned, he felt more abandoned. If we can't understand our suffering because of how we've sought to live a faithful life, how much more could he not understand the reason for his suffering? If we cry out feeling rejected by God, how much more did Christ? 
If we feel like God has sold us for a trifle, how much more did Christ feel sold out by God for nothing? If we feel taunted by our neighbors or mocked by society, how much more was he taunted by his neighbors? He has walked the path of suffering ahead of us and he knows what it's like. And because he knows what it's like, Hebrews chapter two, verses five to 18, he is able to sympathize with us. He understands our weaknesses and he invites us to come to him and to cry out to help from him because he always lives to intercede for us at the right hand of God. Psalm 44, fulfilled first in Christ and then in the church, teaches us not to resign to our sufferings or to turn from God in our sufferings or to give in to numbness, but to cry out to God and to cry out over and over and over. Remember, remember how Jesus himself prayed in his own life, taking time to pray to God. And then how did he teach his disciples to pray? You need to pray like the persistent widow who pleaded with the judge for justice. You need to beat down his door with prayer. Wear him down. Not that God can be worn down, but wear him down, Jesus is teaching in the parable of the persistent widow. Wear God out with your prayers until he answers you. Persistently plead with God until he answers. Ask why. Cry out for rescue. Give thanks for his sovereignty. Ask why again. Cry out to be redeemed again. Pray and pray and pray. And when you're done, pray some more. And yet, you must also realize that God may not answer. He may not answer. But even if he doesn't answer, we have the promise that God is always with us. You even see this in the psalm itself. The psalmist says that the shadow of death covers him, and yet we know from Psalm 23 that God is with us even as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Therefore, we need fear no evil. As hard as that might be to, 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 to grasp, right, the, the Lord is with us in the midst of our sufferings. We also want to recognize as we think about the valley of the shadow of death that we all eventually walk through at some point in our lives, whether we've sought to be faithful or not, that, that valley is coming. But for those who have repented and trusted in Christ, recognize how much good God does in the valleys. God uses our sufferings for our good beyond ways that we can uh, completely understand. You think about how suffering produces endurance and endurance produces hope and hope produces character. I'm not sure if I got those in the right order, but God works through our suffering to produce good in our life and the ultimate good of making us more like Christ, of renewing us in his image. And even though he sovereignly ordains that we suffer in ways that don't always make sense, he has promised to never leave us or forsake us. He has promised to always be with us he has promised that none of us will be snatched from his hand and he has promised that none of our sufferings will ever separate us from his love. In the resurrection, friends, in the resurrection, he will answer all of our prayers. He will rescue us. He will redeem us. He will do it by the sovereign power of his right hand and right arm and he will bring us into his kingdom where his face will shine upon us forever. 
No, keep going. Do the next thing. Do the next thing. Keep going. That day is drawing near. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so prone to, to, to doubt whether you're in control, to, to doubt that you are good. Please forgive us for that. Uh, teach us of your goodness. Remind us of the cross. Remind us of your promises to us. Remind us that you are with us even now. And even when we don't have answers, help us to keep going and to remember and be encouraged by the fact that nothing can ever separate us from your love for us in Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.